Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com. Hello, you're listening to Culture Call, a transatlantic conversation from the Financial Times. I'm Griselda Mari Brown in London. And I'm Lila Raptopoulos in New York. And this is the first episode of season two. Coming up today. I felt like exploring the end of a marriage, you know, it's like by throwing an egg on the floor and seeing what's inside, that I could actually find ways to actually talk about the relationship in, in a kind of general way and also, and also tell a kind of love story. Lila, here we are back in the studio. We're back. How does it feel? <laughs> um, it feels so good. It feels very cozy in my little um, audio booth in the middle of the newsroom and uh, really feeling uh, enveloped in a hug. Great. How are you? Yeah, fine. I'm wrapped up in lots of layers because apart from the fact that I've got lots of room here, it's absolutely freezing in this studio. And this <laughs> season, I'm not taking any chances. I've got literally a blanket. Oh, good. Today's show is a little bit of a movie special. Ahead of the Oscars, we have Noah Baumbach on. Yeah, so Noah Baumbach is known for his offbeat New York comedies, films like The Squid and the Whale, Francis Ha, Mistress America. And I'm sure lots of people have seen his latest film, Marriage Story, which has been nominated for lots of awards and stars Adam Driver and Scarlett Johansson. And after that, we have the FT's new film critic, Danny Lee, on the show. I'm very excited for this. He's going to be giving us his take on this year's Oscar nominations. Uh, and he's also going to tell us a little bit about what it's actually like to be a film critic. <laughs> My sense is that it's less romantic and amazing than everybody thinks, but we'll see. Yes, we have lots of questions for Daddy about that. For sure. So Grizz, it's been a while. Things have changed for you. Tell me what you've been up to. Yeah, I have a new job. Um, yes. I now work on the FT Weekend magazine, editing art stories. I love that. Yeah, which is like a dream job. I can't quite believe it's real, but it is. And working on all sorts of pieces, um, quite photography-based. The most recent one is by a writer called Echo Eschen, who is brilliant. And it's about this exhibition called Masculinities, which is about to open at the Barbican. And it's all mm. about photographers who are exploring the nature of being a man and what that means. So uh, I'll link to that. In our show notes. Yeah. Other than that, there are two things that I've really enjoyed recently and that I want to recommend. They're both old pieces of art that somehow feel fresh and feel now. And I think that's why they spoke to me. Mm. The first was an exhibition I went to. Um, it's an artist called Charlotte Solomon. I'd never heard of her before. It's at the Jewish Museum in London. It's only on for another month. But it's really good and such a revelation. Um, Charlotte Solomon was a German Jewish artist who was born... In, I think, 1917, she died in Auschwitz in 1943. So that's, I mean, her life was very short. She was 26 when she died. Um, she was actually five months pregnant. And there's mm. this real sadness to her story, which kind of hangs over the whole show. And yet 
it's very beautiful and very kind of hopeful and joyful in in some ways. You kind of walk along looking at, I think it's over 200 small paintings. Oh, wow. It's a bit like looking at a visual diary of her life. It starts with childhood and goes until before she died. It's called Life or Theatre, and it's basically, it's about, her life was a difficult life. There's like a history of mental illness in her family, um, but it's also about her finding her voice as an artist and growing in confidence, and particularly as a woman artist. There's a mixture of text and painting. They're like little gouaches. It's like reading a book that's been unbound and just put on the walls. Each page is probably A4, I think. The drawing looks like it's done quite quickly, but it's really kind of fresh so this idea of life and life or theatre, and I guess kind of life and theatre, it's about autobiography and it made me think about autofiction and the interview that I did with Ben Lerner at the end of last year and the idea yeah. of turning your life into a story and using art as a way of making sense of your life. I think that's kind of what she was doing and she was in these, you know, really difficult circumstances and channeling that into a kind of creative expression and sort of playing with the boundary of herself as a real artist and the character who's on the page. Yeah, that's amazing. So what's your second recommendation? My second thing is Uncle Vanya, uh, the Chekhov play, and it's a new adaptation um, that's just opened in London. Right. Uh, the draw of this production is an actor called Toby Jones. Google him if you don't know his name. You'll definitely recognize his face. Yes. He played uh, Truman Capote in Infamous. He was um, in The Hunger Games, if that's of interest. I think he was in Harry Potter. Yes. Just for the lowbrow. Yeah. <laughs> People among us. He is a, he is a brilliant actor. Um, yeah. So he plays Vanya, this guy who's kind of late middle age ish um, looking back on his life, feeling very disappointed. Toby Jones was very sort of angry and funny and impassioned, but it wasn't just good because he was so good. It's basically a play like all Chekhov, which is about this family in decline. They're dealing with lots of various disappointments and everyone's sort of in love with the wrong person. <laughs> Somehow it managed to feel really fresh and really funny. It's a new translation by um, a playwright called Connor McPherson. And it just, they were saying things that definitely were, you know, anachronistic. Like what? Well, like Toby Jones would just be like, oh, stop wanging on, which is so like on Chekhov. And somehow it worked. Like it felt you could really relate to these people who yeah. were all trapped in this horrible situation in this house and just, just being awful to each other. So what have you been up to? Well, a lot has happened, Grizz, since we left each other in December. Some good, some bad. I got an impulsive upper ear piercing. Everything's fine. <laughs> it looks great in the pictures. Thank you. I have two things to tell you about. One, Jagged Little Pill, the Alanis Morissette musical, is excellent. <laughs> and everybody should see it. It's a jukebox musical, which you know is a style of musical where you just get hit after hit, but it's not about the artist. So it's just like using their music in a different story. Exactly. So it's in the same vein of Mamma Mia or Beautiful, the Carol King musical. But it's the best version I've ever seen. So basically, it's the story of a family in suburban Connecticut who is trying and sort of failing to be happy. And as one of my friends put it, it's kind of about everything. It's about every social issue. It's about addiction. It's about homophobia. It's about global warming, adoption issues, the Me Too movement, racism. Like, in some places, it feels slightly heavy-handed <laughs> and a little bit of an after-school special, um, but it was totally delightful. Um, and you know Alanis Morissette. I mean, I have older sisters who loved her, and her songs are all a gut punch. Yes. I also came to her 
I guess, kind of late, but I just loved her. I mean, even before I knew, <laughs> I was going to say, even before I knew what heartache was, but <laughs> but there is something about listening to Alanis Morissette when you're, uh, when you're 10 and thinking, wow. <laughs> right, right, right. I can't wait till my first breakup when I can fully appreciate this. <laughs> There's also oh, an incredible rendition in this play of You Ought to Know that led to a standing ovation in the middle of the play. The perfect version of me Is he perverted like me Would he go down on you in a theater So he speaks eloquently And you can have his baby I'm sure you'd make a really excellent mother which I don't think I've ever seen. I mean, they definitely don't do that in, in London, no. basically. I've never even seen a standing ovation in London. Americans love to throw those around. <laughs> I recommend you see it. Invite me. I'll go again with you. It was amazing. <laughs> I have also been reading a book called Uncanny Valley by Anna Weiner. Um, I've heard about this. Yeah, it's kind of everywhere right now. It's a memoir and her first book. And she tells the story of being a broke 25-year-old working at a literary agency in New York. And then she gets a job at a tech startup in Silicon Valley and moves over. And she's sort of like the exact writer you would want to make fun of that world. <laughs> um, she's really like the only word I can think of is deft. You know, like she's a very cutting writer. And she sort of sums up a lot of the themes that we talk about here. You know, she talks about the infinite scroll of our social platforms where a viral chicken recipe is above a terrorist attack and how everyone has become sort of curatorial. Even the books we read, it's kind of clear that we're all just addicted to all the same parts of the Internet and are repeating each other's uniqueness, <laughs> that our identities are all kind of starting to mirror each other. You know, we're all just like a perfectly crumpled bedsheet with a low-maintenance houseplant next to it in a ceramic beautiful bowl. <laughs> <laughs> I feel so seen. <laughs> I know, I know. But then also that sort of the tech world is like that, but like extremely and and scarily optimized. That mm. It's like, you know, books should be shorter because we should be optimizing every moment of our time. And her saying like, why does technology <laughs> have to ruin everything I love? It's sort of a conflict between like art and tech. Okay, I really want to read it. I'm adding it to the list. Thank you, Lila. Yeah, thank you. Now, Grizz, tell me about Noah Baumbach. I mean, he's obviously all the rage. Everyone is talking about marriage story, but why did you want to speak to him? I've been wanting to interview Noah Baumbach for what feels like quite a few years. Um, the first film I saw of his was, I think, Francis Ha in 2012. Have you seen yeah, it? Yeah, I have. Yeah, it's brilliant. Um, mm -hmm. So he co-wrote that with Greta Gerwig, who stars in it and who um, later became Noah Baumbach's partner, of course. And she's now a director of Little Women fame. Brilliant film, which we can talk about later. <laughs> Unbelievable. Um, <laughs> yeah, let's hold that for Danny. Frances Ha felt quite different to me at the time from the other sort of things I was watching. It's black and white. It's kind of gritty and bitty. Um, I think he was quite inspired by like, the French New Wave cinema of the 1960s. So it feels kind of old. And yet it feels very then of the moment and kind of charming. 2012 was around the same time that I started watching Girls, which was, yes. of course, the Lena Dunham HBO show that was really big at that time. And it's pretty much the same kind of milieu, like young girl lost in Brooklyn, trying to discover what she wants <laughs> to do with her life. And yet Frances Half felt to me just much more real and kind of unresolved. And I think true to actually 
what that feeling of being in your early 20s and being a bit lost is actually like. It's, it was kind of somehow less glossy. Yeah, I totally agree. I think the thing that, that Noah Baumbach and Greta Gerwig do really well is very naturalistic dialogue. It, it sometimes gets called mumblecore <laughs> because people are sort of not speaking very clearly and interrupting each other. It's funny that you talk about mumblecore. I do remember that from his other films, but Marriage Story, it felt almost like a play. Yeah, that's so true. And so the plot is just that Adam Driver's character, Charlie, is an up-and-coming theater director, and he seems really passionate and focused and ambitious, and he's married to and in the process of being divorced from Scarlett Johansson's character, Nicole, who is an actor in his theater company, and her career has taken a bit of a sideline to his. So she started her career strong, but she's become a bit lost. She's trying to work out what she wants as a mother and a wife and a human, Um, and they have a very cute son who's eight years old. And they live in my neighborhood in Brooklyn. <laughs> I feel like all of Noah Baumbach's films are probably set in your neighborhood in Brooklyn. hundred <laughs> percent, yes. Um, yeah, I mean, those two central performances, Scarlett Johansson and Adam Driver, are amazing. But the film also has a really, um, I think, incredible cast beyond that. I mean, Laura Dern plays Nicole's L.A. divorce lawyer. She's incredible. She's so good. I mean... I was trying to describe what she's like and all I could think was like she's like a beautiful purring pussycat who's kind of playful and seductive but like fierce when she gets yeah. her, claw- her claws out which exactly. she does in the courtroom. Yes she also has this moment where she's trying to get Scarlett Johansson to open up to her so she sort of kicks off her heels and tucks her feet under her butt and sort of like asks her to girl talk about sort of her relationship <laughs> and then suddenly you realize that she's going to be kind of using it against Mm. Adam Driver very quickly like this is all just a ruse she does it every time yeah she's just pumping her for information basically Uh, she has like the perfect highlights it's perfect (laughs) (laughs) yeah and she won the best she won the Golden Globe for best supporting actress she's also nominated for the same award at the Oscars Um, I wouldn't be surprised if she won it I mean it is an incredible performance I've noticed that divorce seems to be a big theme in Noah Baumbach's films I'm thinking of the squid and the whale specifically yeah, I mean, that one, I think, has come up a lot when people have been talking and thinking about marriage story. Um, he made The Squid and the Whale in 2005, and it's modeled on his own parents' divorce. Squid is really seen through the eyes of a teenage boy, who I think is um, quite a thinly disguised portrait of Noah Baumbach himself. Um, <laughs> and whereas, obviously, marriage story, you're seeing a divorce through the eyes of the people getting divorced. Um, and I, and it's been there's been speculation that Marriage Story is inspired in that way by Noah Baumbach's own divorce from Jennifer Jason Leigh in 2013. What else did you talk about? Besides the film itself, we also talked about the perceived war between Netflix and the old school of cinema personified by institutions like the Cannes Film Festival. Yeah, can you explain that to me briefly? I don't really understand. I mean, I know there is sort of a one versus the other, but I don't totally get it. Basically... That can, if you want your film to be in competition, so if you want it to be able to win an award, which some films are just playing there and that's fine, but if you want it to win an award, it has to be shown in French cinemas. And then there's a law in France that if you show it in French cinemas, you then have to wait for three years before it becomes available on a streaming platform. Oh my God. So that does not really suit Netflix's needs very well. Right. Well, I'm glad it went well and I can't wait to hear the conversation. So let's get into it. Noah, thank you so much for coming on Culture Call. Thanks for having me. So your new film, it's called Marriage Story, but it's really about the end of a marriage, about working out the terms of the divorce. 
Scarlett Johansson and Adam Driver play these two kind of very flawed, but essentially, I think, kind of decent, kind people who are nevertheless being very awful to each other. I wondered whether you're more interested in how people behave when they're in difficult situations, when they're sort of put in pressurised situations like that, than when they're kind of in an ostensibly good, happy arrangement. Well, I think you know, dramatically and narratively, sometimes when you know something is cracked open, it does give you an opportunity to explore the thing itself. I felt like exploring the end of a marriage, you know, it's like by throwing an egg on the floor and seeing what's inside, that I could actually find ways to actually talk about the relationship in, in a kind of general way and also tell a kind of love story. What I love about Charlie, Charlie is undaunted. He never lets other people's opinions or any setbacks keep him from what he wants to do. Charlie eats like he's trying to get it over with and like there won't be enough food for everyone. A sandwich is to be strangled while devoured. But he's incredibly neat and I rely on him to keep things in order. They're married while they're getting divorced. So it's a very strange situation for them to find themselves because this sort of process of it is by design dividing them, but it also is preventing them from being able to leave each other. Um, and of course, because they share a child, they're never going to be able to fully leave each other. Yeah, and that's the messiness of it. Right, and that's the messiness of it. So, you know, that narratively I found very compelling. You know, when I re researched this movie and talked to many couples who've gone through divorces, um, I also started to talk to many couples who who are still married, um, and 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 ha you know happily married, and marriages that have gone on for quite some time, and it was equally relevant for this story because it's the same whether it ends or doesn't end doesn't change the marriage, the fact that it was a marriage. Yeah, and I think people often think of you know marriage on the one hand, divorce on the other, these things as being opposites. You're either married or you're divorced, but actually there's of course a spectrum. The, the deciding to get divorced is is one in a line of decisions that you make, right? Absolutely, yeah. And and you know, I think divorce, and and we see this in the movie, certainly because of the the legal system that that Charlie and Nicole have to navigate, it can create you know, real feelings of failure and shame, you know, and that can feel, as you're saying, like well, that negates the good that mm, preceded. It was it. never good. Because yeah, now yeah. We're and when, of course. What I wanted to show is that it was, and it still is, even if it's in the past. Mm. When I watched the film, I was reminded of something that an English novelist called Rachel Cusk wrote about divorce. And she says that, in a sense, as well as the awfulness, it's also a kind of liberation. Because in divorcing, you're abandoning the kind of traditional family script and the narrative as it should be which can be quite constrictive. I wonder whether you agree with that and whether that's true at all for Charlie and Nicole in this film. I really like Rachel Cusk's writing. And as you say that, I think it's, it may have even been a note I took or underlined when hmm. I was reading, when she's talking about divorce that I thought was very... Um, it was after I'd already... Was, I think I was editing the movie when I was, <laughs> when I was reading it. But um, I think that can be true. I mean, I think... I mean, as we see in the movie, it's necessary for Nicole. And Nicole is there in the beginning looking for the momentum 
that she needs to leave. And it was, it was something a friend of mine who was going through a divorce had said to me that you can't leave without momentum. And I found that very moving. And, you know, because I think it, for the person who needs the momentum, it can create guilt, you know, sort of by design feel selfish because you're doing something for you and not for the marriage in a way. Yeah. And I think in that, though, there is that liberation. That was always built into the structure of it is that Nicole is there. You know, she's at her, her most emotional quite early in the movie. And she has her, her monologue and her story to Nora. I mean, again, that's- So an, that's her divorce lawyer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah her, in their divorce lawyer's office. That's all um, in the first half of the movie. In the beginning, I was the actress, the star, and that felt like something. You know, people came to see me at first, but- the farther away I got from that and the more acclaim the theater company got, I had less and less weight. I just became who? Oh, you know, the actress that was in that thing that time. And, and he was the draw. And that would have been fine, but I got smaller. Um, I mean, I, I sort of thought, well, the story on one hand is about a woman building herself back up and finding voice and about a man breaking himself down and losing voice mm. in a sense, you know, and, and, uh, and how they handle this. I mean, there are many kind of genres that are kind of inherent in this story, but there are movies that I love. There's a, I don't know if we call it a genre or a subgenre, whatever it is, but, but movies about like a love that cannot be, you know, I mean, I, I love Brief Encounter. Mm. Um, Casablanca even is this. I mean, it's and um, and I've had some people say to me like, "Oh, you know, I wanted them to be together at the end or something like that." And I think, yes, but that's what this is, <laughs> you know. And and uh, and there is pleasure in these movies because of that ache because it feels right. Yeah. Having seen Marriage Story, I went back and watched The Squid and the Whale, your film from 2005. And um, there was a scene that, that stood out to me because it seemed to kind of echo something. Adam Driver's character, he gives Scarlett Johansson a note, like a sort of director's note after the final performance. And it's completely redundant because, you know, it's pointless to give someone a note when they're not going to perform the role again. <laughs> right. But he can't not do it. And in The Squid and the Whale, Jeff Daniels' character essentially gives a kind of writer's note to his wife. Um, he says, did you take my note about the ending? And she's like, well, mm. right. does, <laughs> she's, does, she's doing her right. own thing. Does, does he still die? Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly. Like, then you didn't take my note. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I wonder, is there something that's like inherently controlling about directing in that sense? Is what Adam does controlling? I, in terms of those two movies, it's something that's actually occurred to me recently in talking about the movie. When I wrote the note scene in Marriage Story, I wasn't thinking about the Squid and the Whale note scene, which <laughs> it was either a good thing or it just means I only have a few ideas. <laughs> I, um, but uh, I, without really knowing it, I was looking back at my parents' divorce in Marriage Story. But I think I was sort of reapproaching it from, from the adult perspective I mean, Squid was very much. I mean, it's 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 from it's principally from the kids' perspective that yeah. movie. You know, it, there's so much emotion in that because we all still feel like children in yeah. some way, yeah, and and still are in some way. It's funny. I found um, 
watching Squid hard. I'm a child of divorce and I and I think the parents are less sympathetic in that film than they are in Marriage Story. I think in Marriage Story, because you're seeing it from their perspective, for me that was an interesting moment to see a divorce playing out sort of from the inside and not to view it from the child's point of view, which is what I personally have done. It was kind of a wrench, actually, but also eye-opening. I always thought of The Squid and the Whale as a story about family and about children and parents. And, you know, in the case of the, the older son in that movie, that sort of necessary moment of separation that has to happen between kids and parents. And, and, and that divorce, in some ways, it can demystify parents for kids. Because, you know, when from a kid's perspective, when a couple is together, you have this unified front. So you kind of trust that they know best. And then somehow, you know, when in the in the wake of a, a breakup, it can expose flaws mm. and, and 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 but also their humanity. Start, they're real people. They're real people and they start to see them that way, which is actually troubling <laughs> when when you're younger. Yeah. Um it, it's an important step though. And so that you know, as a story that was interesting to me. But something that I found in marriage story is that um my sympathy was sort of constantly shifting between the two characters. Is that what you wanted? Yeah. one to feel as a viewer. Yeah, because, of course, nobody's more right or wrong. I wanted the audience in some ways be able to actually, um, it's a funny way to say it, but take that ride in a way. I mean, to have the experience as we naturally do as audiences when, we, when we're when we presented with the protagonist, you know, it's you know, Hitchcock is brilliant at that. It's like if you if you go with a burglar into a, a building and, and you're watching them try to gather as much valuables as, as they can and then the family comes home and they're downstairs and the burglar has to figure out a way to get mm. out of the building we're, we're we're nervous now we want them to get out because we've been with them we've been presented yeah. that perspective and movies do that i also felt it was a way for the audience to honestly arrive at the feeling that we all know rationally but 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 emotionally we can't always get there these are two human beings who are doing the best they can who love their kid, there's still love for each other. Mm. It's all perspective, but but it feels even-handed here. It feels like we we spend time with the interior of each of them. And I'm interested, I mean, it's been this film has been read both as autobiographical of your parents' divorce, but of your own divorce as well. And did you feel like you were making a personal film in that sense? Well, I I I'm I I it's it's a very personal film. Um, I mean, all my movies are very personal. Um, but was it more uh, personal? But I, I well, I, I make the distinction between personal and autobiographical because the autobiographical, I, I wouldn't know how to make an autobiographical movie. I mean, it, I, I've had ideas for this movie for years now and, and thoughts and lines and it's probably been written in about four different notebooks. And, and it, it isn't till until it sparks the imagination, until the fiction is available to me that I can start writing. Um, now, it doesn't mean, of course, I, I might draw from, uh, you know, my life and other people's lives. I mean, I, I, a friend who had told me a story about how he had cut open his arm at a party with an X-Acto knife and, and was so embarrassed that he tried to just play it off like <laughs> it was fine. And, 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 you know, he's 50 years old and has this terrible scar on his arm from... Uh, this experience that was something I've had 
like waiting to find mm, its, its moment. A brilliant scene. And, and I didn't know, but I wrote that scene and I didn't know that was going to come into that scene. And that's something then, oh, okay, this thing that, uh, yeah. you know, I, I, and, and that's how I guess it, your friends have to be careful what they tell you. Well, they do. Although he, 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 so when he watched, I showed him this movie early on and he said, he's like, he's like, at this point, I go into each one of your movies and I'm just waiting to see what from my life you've taken. Um, but it's funny, the question of, autobiography and i mean i understand it but it's it it's the movies would only be as relatable as they are if if they were fiction yeah you've been called the king of indie cinema and i'm wondering what indie means now has that has the meaning of it changed and has netflix and other kind of streaming platforms do you think they've kind of changed the game of indie cinema <sighs> i i mean i always it's a, it's a funny term i'm never quite sure what i feel about the term indie cinema. In the past, um, you know, the notion of an independent film would be a film that's financed by money that's not coming from Warner Brothers or Paramount. What I will say about Netflix is, you know, when I got into the business, I I kind of always fantasized about the sort of having a home with this, you know, you would read about like UA studio is always sort of like the the one that they would support filmmakers and let them make their movies and it's okay if you make a weird one you know mm. at some point we'll you know as long as the budgets are right we'll let you kind of follow your muse in that way and does uh, netflix uh, allow that netflix really does feel i mean they they do truly love movies and they come at it as fans of movies and 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 that's really meaningful for me mm. so do you think that the kind of war with cam film festival on one side Netflix on the other is that overstated in the press? Does it matter to a to someone who goes and sees a film? I mean, it's a complicated question because it's different in different countries. Because France obviously has a the three year gap, and in America, there's now also this sort of this transition going on between the cinema chains, the big cinema chains, you know, who also insist on a three month window, uh, not quite as long as three years. Um, so uh, this is between like uh, playing in theaters. Yeah, well, and... but but now that Netflix also has changed, and you know, we we had had a month exclusively in theaters for um, Marriage Story. For yeah. Marriage Story, so people got real opportunity. People who want to go to the theater, and they also rescued the Paris Theater, which is this, I mean, iconic theater in New York, which had closed. It was the last single screen, like old single screen theater in New York, and they've they've taken it on. Um, which is amazing. You know, the Irishman marriage story are limited to where they can play because it's only independent cinemas can play them. Mm. That's going to change. I don't know how long it's going to take. I mean, but everything is going on. And and as soon as technology changed and we could all watch things on our phone, I I, I guess in retrospect, this was bound to happen. Mm. And so this feels like an exciting time. Well, or, or, it's ex- confusing, <laughs> but but it it is exciting. But I do feel very strongly about the theatrical experience. I I think it's a singular experience, and I do think for me it's important to talk about it in the context of movies like Marriage Story. It's always sort of event movies are always the ones that are sort of singled out of like as a theatrical. We need theater for IMAX and you know, so we can all turn our chairs into beds and watch, you know, <laughs> uh, or eat, and eat hamburgers and watch movies on a big screen. I, I, I feel the same way. But there is a, a more nuanced argument about watching movies that are, you know, that are human stories in the theater among people, crying amongst people, 
you know, laughing amongst people. Uh, and also, it, it's also just the fact that you can't change the channel <laughs> or, or is you're vulnerable and open in a way that you aren't at home. Mm. You know, even if you don't pause it and watch the whole thing, you are aware on some level mm. that that's possible in a way that you aren't when you watch a movie in a theater. Yeah, I could hear people crying around me when I watched Marriage Story. And there was something about that that was that was moving. Right. On Netflix, they can pause it and they'll <laughs> <laughs> go take a break yeah. and then come back and see it again, which, you know, I, I suppose is fine if they need it. But I, I, I do think the catharsis, you know, I mean, I was watching a movie. I actually was watching the Criterion Channel, um, which I love. Uh, it's like, what is La Ventura like? Now, I hadn't watched that movie in a long time. Also, should be seen on a screen and uh, a big screen. And I started watching it and I was watching it and I just became aware of the fact that I was holding the Apple remote the entire time I was watching hmm. it. I wasn't doing anything with it, but I was holding it like some safety you know, blanket, like the eject button. Yeah. 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 Like I can get out if I need <laughs> to. And that's not a good thing. And if I was seeing it, you know, at a revival house on a big screen, I'm sure I would be, available in a different way than than I was sitting at home. Mm. Noah, thanks so much. Yeah, thank you. Wow, Grizz, that was really interesting. It really made me want to watch the film again, actually. I've got a lot of questions, but I'm thinking before we start that as we discuss the interview, we may mention the end of the movie. Um, it may be a little bit of a spoiler for people. We don't really think that the film is really spoilable. So anyway, proceed with that knowledge as a listener. Grizz, did talking to Noah change the way you thought about him or his films? I mean, I actually, yeah, I, I, watched, I did watch the film again, having spoken to him, and I saw it a bit differently. Um, I mean, partly because I found it hard the first time, as I said to him, but also I think because I was thinking of what he said about how portraying a divorce is really a way of portraying the inside of a marriage. Mm. Um, and I really like that. And I kind of thought about it more about a film about relationships and family as much as it being a film about divorce. And I think I also saw how, how funny, I really appreciated how funny it is the second mm. time I watched it. There were just mm -hmm. some brilliant comic scenes. I also felt after listening to Noah talk about it that I guess I had more sympathy for them, you know? Uh, the interview really, like, drove that home for me, that they're not monsters whose fault it is doesn't really matter. Like, the end of any relationship, it's just, if it's not right, it's not right, and you look back in a different point of view, but really mm. everybody's just doing the best they can. Yeah, and it's interesting because I do think there's a human impulse to take sides or to decide whose fault it is. Mm. And I think I, I think my natural tendency was to find Adam Driver and was to find his character really selfish and yeah. annoying and just want to like give him a slap. Um, mm. But actually there were also times, like what you say, you see that he's just someone under a huge amount of pressure and he's just trying. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I also liked in the interview what you talked about around kind of liking movies about a love that cannot be. Mm. You know, that there's a pleasure, that the ache, there's a pleasure in the movies because of that ache. Yeah. Um, part of what's so kind of special about that depiction of the marriage is that so many people have experienced that. Um, you know, whose fault is it? It doesn't matter. Was it a failure because it didn't work? Not necessarily. 
Yeah, I think I think Noah Baumbach is really good at portraying the ache. I mean, I think maybe what he does less well is portraying happy people. But then maybe <laughs> the happy I think maybe just happy people are more boring to portray. You know, I was reading about I was reading some stuff about marriage story and someone was quoting Anna Karenina, mm. Tolstoy novel and that happy families are all alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. <laughs> and I kind of like that. It's just there's just something more interesting about digging into where things go wrong and where life is difficult. Yeah. I don't know. Do you do you think so? Like, no. <laughs> I think about that quote all the time <laughs> just because me. I No, well, I feel like my family is extremely happy, even though we every mm. we are like problematic, like all families. And I think like we're happy in our own way. Like <laughs> Like, it doesn't have to be unhappiness. But uh, I guess the reason I don't like that quote is because happiness versus unhappiness feels sort of like binary and simplistic, right? Like, Mm. you know, it's not it's not about whether you don't have to be very unhappy to be complicated. And this movie is about um, so many different ways in which a relationship is complicated. Yeah, no, you're right. It's um, and and happiness can be complicated and interesting. (laughs) I take it back. (laughs) Sorry. You know, it was interesting. I I felt that Noah didn't really answer your question about whether directors have to be controlling Mm. um, in the way that both the husbands are controlling and like to give notes, um, both in Squid and in Marriage Story. I felt like his dodging the question was kind of a form of control. I think definitely. I think an interview is like a little dance of control. You're trying to get something. They're trying to withhold something. Right. You're pushing a bit harder, but not too hard. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's kind of the dynamics of that are interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny that at the end of the film, Nicole becomes a director. Like she sort of gets the control she was looking mm, for. Yeah. Control over her life, control over a cast. <laughs> mm. It was a nice place for the film to end. Yeah. I loved the ending. Another thing that really stuck with me from your conversation with him is when he talked about all the different perspectives, you know, the one the couple had of each other versus what they have now, um, the one that the lawyers have of the relationship, the one that the mother has of the relationship and the sister. Yeah. In a breakup or at the end of a marriage, like everybody suddenly gets permission to share their perspective on your relationship too, right? whether it would last, how it seemed. And it was it was interesting to watch that. I mean, you see them sort of struggling with it, right? You're both kind of grateful for the context or for being seen or for the new framing, but then also sort of hurt by it or protective of it. Like suddenly you're losing control of the narrative and others are building it for you. I mean, there was that scene of the lawyers sort of fighting out the couple's most intimate moments in the courtroom using real fire And it was totally reframing those moments into something that was almost unrecognizable to the scenes in which you saw the moments. Yeah, it was kind of weaponized, wasn't it? It was taking these quite innocent things and turning them into like big oversights. Right, right. And that felt particularly heart-wrenching to me. Mm. I was just thinking when you were saying that, the thing, I don't know about hardest, one of the things I hated the most about my parents' divorce was how everyone suddenly felt like they had permission to say what they'd always thought right and just tell me it was <laughs> right. extraordinary and kind of unforgivable yeah and i just there's something about um something being in the past and it ha- it being over that people feel like okay now we can say what we think 
Right. Um, and it's so not okay. Yeah. But but it's a it's a perspective thing, I think. Yeah, it's a perspective thing. And um, you know, Grizz, I've also been thinking a lot about like why now? Why is this film making waves now? How does it fit into the culture? And I can't figure it out, honestly. Do you what do you have any thoughts about that? Well, I was thinking actually it's basically it's basically the opposite of Uncanny Valley, the book that you were talking about earlier, <laughs> yeah. like which is very now. It's like what I mean, there is nothing more timeless or universal than a breakup. You know, mm. every adult pretty much has been through one or um, helped someone through one. Right. Divorce is incredibly common. Um, and so I feel like people's reactions to this film are very personal. Yeah. I mean, you can't not bring yourself to it like I've just done, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Same. <laughs> It'll be interesting to hear how Danny Lee sees the whole suite of Oscar nominations. Danny Lee, welcome to Culture Call. Thank you for joining us. It's an absolute pleasure. Um, so before we talk about the Oscar-nominated movies, I'm honestly just dying to know what it means to be a film critic as a job. Like, what is your life like? What is like an average week for you? It's a beautiful job um, in so many ways. I think there is a responsibility that comes with it as well. Um, some of that responsibility is actually communicating to the readers, you know, whether this film or these films are worth their time, worth their money. So there's a lot going on. And yeah, and there's deadlines thrown in too. Um, I'm a little groggy because the day that we're recording this is the day that I file my column. Um, and my, my writing habits have changed probably less than I would like or have expected to since I was uh, an undergraduate student. Um, so <laughs> when I'm filing my copy, I am always a little kind of baggy eyed at the end of it. The, the kind of insider secrets of the London press critic, uh, you know, you have the there will be weeks where I will have neatly and in a kind of orderly fashion seen everything well ahead of time and composed my thoughts. Uh, right. and, and I'll have even less of an excuse to be writing at the last minute. <laughs> but there will also be moments where things are, are kind of flying in at the last moment and you're watching, you know, really quite big films you know, on the Tuesday afternoon and then you're filing copy uh, by Wednesday lunchtime. So you have to get your thoughts together quite quickly. Uh, I'd rather write about something having had a moment or two to sort of digest it first. That makes sense. Yeah, rather rather than that thing of just, you know, which I've seen people do a lot, which is literally bowling out of the cinema 10 minutes before the end credits, you know, just in order to get the review up quickly. Um Let's talk about the other films that are up for awards. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Danny, nineteen seventeen won the Golden Globe. I mean, do you think it's going to win the Oscar? I mean, yeah. I mean, I I suppose if I was sitting in the back of the cab and the cab driver asked me what they should put <laughs> twenty quid on, I would say nineteen seventeen. I mean, I'm not a particularly good prognosticator. Mm. It's a very impressive film, uh, you know. And, and impressive is such a, a weird and loaded term. Um, there's something cold about impressive. Yeah, well, it is. I mean, it's just, it's it's very bold. It just, it doesn't necessarily mean a lot to you to be impressed by something. Um, it's very well told and very well made, but it does also feel like, you know, if you go to the restaurant and the chef appears beside your table and sort of talks you through the meal, mm. presents you with the food, it feels a little bit like that. It feels like Sam Mendes is just out of shot in pretty much every <laughs> shot. And you're just aware of what... Uh, a kind of astonishing achievement the film is. Mm. But we have to jump! Come on! No! You're going to have to jump! Just jump! I can't! I can't see! You need to trust me! Jump! 
them. I haven't seen it yet. I really don't want to see it. I feel like I should see it. Right. When I was saying to my brother, who's a camera operator, oh, I don't know if I really want to see it. He was like, oh, get over yourself. You haven't seen it yet. You shouldn't have an opinion. And it's visually stunning. It's got all this steady cam and whatever. And Yeah, and, that, and that's all true. Uh, but I think for a film, particularly a film about the First World War and about human loss and the tragedy of the battlefield, I think it should do more than offer immaculate, groundbreaking Steadicam work. Although it does do that, you know. And again, I mean, tell him that. I, I love camera operators, uh, but films should have a broader appeal than that. And what about Joker? What were your thoughts on that? You said in, a, in your review, I think, that it's an awful film for awful times. Um, I think you said that in an email, actually. Oh, sorry. <laughs> a private email. <laughs> it's fine. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't disagree with myself. Um, <laughs> what's interesting about Joker, and there's there's a limited amount of stuff which is interesting about Joker, but what is is the idea that it's yeah, it's this incredibly valid, acid commentary on where we are, where we are as a culture now in in 2020. But I think it's you know it's part of the problem and the idea that something which is so fundamentally vapid. I mean, Joker just seems to me at best to be a, really an assembly of memes, you know, and an assembly of online nuggets, you know, strung together. Mm. Um, I mean, the idea that that I mean, the idea that we're taking it seriously, the idea that we're talking about it now. But it's interesting that people are taking it seriously, that they're saying, you know, this is the state of masculinity. This is the kind of the incel movement or the this is the kind of mental health provision and i mean it's it's trying well, to be weighty right well i mean it 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 there's a character who has what are presented as very very severe mental health issues i mean you know the the i mean if you want to have that conversation to kind of you know the 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 level of profundity with which mental health is dealt with in joker is infinitesimal mm. i mean it's 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 everything is a, it's todd phillips uses everything as a gag so that even something which has this air of kind of very heavy-handed solemnity and importance i mean it's all the hangover really you know yeah uh, i agree which is one of his other films um we are yeah the other one of the other big contenders is obviously martin scorsese's the irishman um which Sorry, Scorsese, I watched it on Netflix rather than in the cinema, which is probably as long as you sat, not what he wanted. So long as you sat there and actually watched it and didn't like get, well, up, I know, get up every 15 Danny, minutes and have a biscuit. The second part of my confession is I watched it over about three different nights, um, <laughs> which is definitely not what he intended. I, think, I just think it was too long. I think three nights is fine. Anecdotally, I mean, I know people who've literally watched it over like 10 nights. Just sort of sit there and think, <laughs> 20 minutes at a time. Right? Because I think well, in an odd moment. So it's like 20 minutes kind of when they've come in the door on Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, you know, sort of just before bed on a Wednesday, another 20 minutes. But I found, and I, and I have borrowed this thought from somewhere else, so I can't claim credit for it. I found that after three and a half hours, as the credits rolled in The Irishman, I thought, okay, this film is a masterpiece. This film is, is top tier Scorsese. After an hour and 20 minutes, I don't know that I thought that. After, mm. you know, quite a long way into the film, I felt quite alienated by it. I felt that it was kind of being willfully, aggressively obtuse and 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 by the time i got to the three and a half hour mark as i say by the time the credits rolled i thought oh no everything now suddenly slots into place i mean what i liked about the irishman or admired about the irishman i don't know if it's a film that you like so much as admire um is the the chill of it i mean it's an incredibly cold film mm. incredibly sad film i mean the idea that you get to that point of life and your kids don't speak to you anymore and 
nobody's really listening and everything that's being said by everyone you included is probably all made up and nonsensical um i mean that's bleak uh and it's very weird with the Irishman at the Oscars, because the idea of this kind of, you know, now famously septuagenarian, you know, voter pool, the idea that that is what they want to embrace and say to the world, <laughs> the idea that you end up sitting on your own. Old and irrelevant. Yeah, leaving leaving the door ajar, you know, in case you die and nobody notices. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I think that's kind of interesting. Um, I, I do, honest, honest to God, I think that we will be talking about or I possibly will anyway, talking about the Irishman in, in 30 years' time in the mm. same way that people now talk about Goodfellas. Um, yeah, so you mentioned the conversation around the Oscars this year. We're now four years on, I think, from hashtag Oscars so white. Mm-hmm. I remember you writing about it at the time. This year, no women have been nominated for in the Best Director category. Um, one performer of colour has been uh, nominated for a performance. I mean, it feels a bit like the Oscars are going backwards in some way. Definitely. Um, you know, the, the actually, I mean, I think kind of quietly momentous, uh, you know, import that Moonlight winning Best Picture had. It, that seems a really long time ago already. Mm, um, it, does. it does feel like we're spiraling backwards. I mean, you know, there's this whole conversation around the chicken and egg nature of, of awards in the industry, because, you know, and this isn't limited to the Oscars. I mean, BAFTA have said similar things in Britain as well, um, you know, that they can only nominate the films which are being made. But of course, I think that ignores um, another logic which kicks in in the industry, which is that people make films to make money. Absolutely. But people certainly at a, at, at a certain level will also make the films that they think will win them Oscars, mm. or have them on the red carpet. And that's important to studios. It's important to distributors. It's important to financial. Um, so when you see, you know, a kind of lineup like we've seen this year, which is very, very dispiriting, um, you know, it's very naive and disingenuous, I think, to, to pretend that that isn't going to then have its own legacy, which is the films that will now be greenlit because they're a little bit like 1917. Yeah, it's like the industry isn't try- trying hard enough or consistently enough. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And it feels like when you look at the Best Director nominees and the Best Picture nominees are obviously then mirrored, you know, in most part, it feels so unthinkable that Scorsese wouldn't be up. It feels so unthinkable that Tarantino wouldn't be up. It feels so unthinkable that Sam Mendes wouldn't be up, you know. Uh, and it's interesting. I think we probably need to pin down why it is so utterly inconceivable that Tarantino's name would have been missed off that list with or with, with, without even getting into a conversation about whether he deserves to be on there. And that Greta Gerwig, for whatever reason, who is a filmmaker who so many people are rightly excited by and enthused by, who's been acknowledged as this incredibly overdue breath of fresh air, when it comes to the crunch, her name's not down. Yeah, and actually I think what she did with Little Women... You know, and this isn't the first time the film's had a big adaptation. She did something completely different, you know, chopping up the chronology, changing the focus so that really it becomes about not who will Joe March marry, but which book will she write? Right. Right. Where will will she find her voice? Women, they, they have minds and they have souls as well as just hearts and they've got ambition and they've got talent as well as just beauty and i'm so sick of people saying that that love is just all a woman is fit for i'm so sick of it but i'm i'm so lonely it's a feminist book and she went she went back to that to the source i think and i wonder if the slightly 
jagged nature of the storytelling, you know, and the back and forth and the kind of throwing people out of the chronology. I wonder whether that counted against Greta Gerwig. I will say that I always found Little Women quite boring. (laughs) (laughs) And this is the first time that I really found it like a a very fun watch. I mean, I'm just wary of saying it because, you know, I mean, I'm a a Londoner. But, you know, yeah, I mean, I'll have met and Oscar voters, you know, several times over the course of the year. I think generally speaking, we know who demographically that pool is made up of. And I think, yeah, I think it's interesting for probably for all the same reasons that you were, you know, energised and animated by this Little Women. I think there will have been an audience, as I say, who 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 want the kind of the old tunes played in the old way. Mm. Right. Um, That's so depressing. But on a positive... <laughs> it, it is depressing. But on a positive note... The Academy is actually out of step with what's happening. Mm-hmm. I mean, this into the, in 2019, there were, I've got here a stat, 10.6% of the directors of the top 100 grossing films were women, which is more than doubled since the year before. So there's something happening. It's just that the Academy is not reflecting it. Oh, listen, there are things happening left, right and centre. Um, and it's really interesting because the market is doing all the right things. Because mm. actually, when you look at the films that are doing well in America and Britain and elsewhere, financially... Um, it's actually quite a sunny picture. I mean, Hustlers came along and did fantastically well. And Hustlers is the kind of... Right, exactly (laughs) so. And I think, again, it's the kind of film where, you know, I think there's probably a whole audience of, like, young women who don't necessarily... They get get so underserved by cinema. There was the film Blue Story, which came out, uh, again, which was very much overlooked at the BAFTAs. um, And Blue Story, made by the director Ratman, who came up through YouTube, um, and it made four and a half million pounds at the British box office, which, for a small, low-budget British film Mm. at the British box office, is big money. Uh, And Little Women has done fantastically well at the box office. So I think, you know, the headline is that, I mean, it's the award ceremonies that are losing ground and becoming irrelevant. Yeah. You know, Danny, I was going to ask you if you had any tips for like the best way to watch movies because you because you watch them all the time. Like are there stuff, are there things that you pay attention to that maybe we should be paying attention to that would make us appreciate movies more? Well, listen, watch what you like. I mean, completely. I mean, I've always been like hugely, hugely kind of Catholic in my tastes and and, and you should just watch everything. It's the same with, with literature and music and any kind of art form. I mean, you know, absorb it all. <laughs> I would say I, I think films should be seen at the cinema for lots of different reasons. Watching a film on the big screen collectively is the best way to watch a film because I think you need the size of the screen and you also need the presence of you know 26 strangers in Mm. (laughs) yeah you know and that's not to say that the films that you end up sitting there watching on your laptop which speak to you are not speaking to you it's not to say that that's an invalid experience i just think they're speaking to you in a in a in a quieter and less reliable voice that's pretty much exactly what noah said in the interview we didn't arrange that i mean (laughs) you're singing from the same hymn sheet um I think my favourite way to um, see a film, which is actually difficult when you're a journalist, but I like to go to a film without really knowing anything Uh about it. I went to see Parasite last night. I knew um, by Bong Joon-ho, which has been also nominated for one of the best film uh, awards at the Oscars. I purposefully avoided reading all reviews. I knew it had been hyped. I knew it was South Korean. That's about as much as I knew. And I was expecting something that was kind of, I don't know, art house and ponderous and beautiful and maybe a bit slow what I found was something really fun and thrilling and kind of a romp extremely dark extremely funny 
And I loved it. And I'm so glad that I didn't know that as I was going in. Hmm. Absolutely. I mean, and I feel trepidatious kind of adding anything to that really because Parasite is... uh, it's one of my favourite films of... It will be one of my favourite films of 2020 by the time we get to the end of the year. Um, I think it should win Best Film for a couple of reasons. But I sort of want to stop the conversation there as well because I know that lots of people won't have caught up with Parasite yet. Are there any films that you felt didn't get their due um, sort of in the awards nominations? Yeah, I mean, it becomes kind of Oscars tradition or awards tradition to kind of reel off this list of your favourite films, you know, which are often (laughs) these incredibly sort of tiny little kind of art house releases that somehow have been overlooked by the Academy. I do think the fact that Uncut Gems, the Safdie Brothers film, um, has not received kind of any acknowledgement at all is ridiculous. Um, It's out there on Netflix, so lots of people will be stumbling into it. I Um, haven't actually seen it yet. What's it about? So Adam Sandler plays um, a diamond dealer in the Diamond District in Manhattan. You know, it's, it's a real place. If you walk through, you know, 47th Avenue in New York. Um, 47th Street. 47th Street. Thank you so much. <laughs> this is the, the Londoner. Like, I'm London splaining, right? This is what I'm doing. Um, no, go for it. Go for it. 40, no, so if you walk down 47th Street, I mean, it, you know, it feels very, it's got that very verite feel of this is a real corner of, of New York that hasn't really been seen on, on screen so much. I like the earrings. Yeah. Like Those are great. I was coming yeah. here checking out When's some moves, When's the last man? time you cleaned them? I tell them. Let me clean this for you. You can clean them real Let quick. Let me throw really? them in the ultrasonic for you. For free. This is going to cost okay? For free. For free. For real? I like it because it's this interesting contrast with Wall Street. And obviously we've seen Wall Street so much as this kind of backdrop and this engine of, of great cinema moments in the past. But the Diamond District is this other kind of hub of international commerce. It's not a comedy, but it has that very kind of freewheeling uh, kind of comic energy behind it. So then in terms of, of of other films which have been acknowledged a fraction, but not nearly to the extent that they should, um, I'd also mention the film Harriet, um, which is the, the biography of Harriet Tubman. Uh, so Cynthia Revo, who plays Harriet Tubman, uh, has been nominated as Best Actress. She's the one uh, actor of colour who's up from the 20 categories available because of the nature of Harriet Tubman's story and the role that she played, you know, in the revolt against slavery. It's this very physical experience. You know, she is on the move. Um, and she, But she also has, you know, this, this kind of quiet defiance and this incredible presence. I think Harriet should have had more acknowledgement. And I say this with my fingers crossed that Cynthia Erivo wins Best Actress, although I'd be sort of surprised if she did. Danny, thank you so much for uh, your thoughts. I mean, I now have seven movies on my list of things to see. So, Oh, good. Well, my work here is done in that case. Good. <laughs> <laughs> That's almost it for this week. Before we go, we have some suggested but obviously not mandatory listening for the next episode. Our guest will be the critically acclaimed podcaster and sound artist Caitlin Prest. If you don't know her work, you're in for a real sonic treat. I haven't listened to her stuff before. What should I start with? I would start with back episodes of The Heart, which is what she's best known for. And I especially recommend a mini series within it called No. It's about consent. Uh, it really like digs into the nuances of that. And it came out before the Me Too movement, which is really fascinating. Um, I will link to that in our show notes. Thanks, as always, for listening. We'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. Continue the conversation with us on Twitter. You can find the podcast at FT Culture Call, or you can email the show at culturecall at ft.com. If you like what you hear, I really can't overstate how helpful it is for you to share this podcast with your friends. 
put it on your Instagram story, anything like that. You can also help us out by leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, which is one of the main ways that new listeners discover the show. We've been Lila Raptopoulos and Griselda Mari Brown. Culture Call is produced by Lena Prestwood. And our music is composed by Fatum.